Hey, how you doing? It's good to see you all out there. Glad you showed up. Here at Cape Bible Chapel, let me say, it's a great thing when we come together and worship. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 10 to 14 today. If you've been with us and you're kind of dialed into this Understanding Grace series, you know this is what we're doing. We're kind of walking through and knocking out small chunks of the text at the time. And, and if you're doing that, then no doubt you've noticed, it kind of sounds like the Apostle Paul's repeating himself a lot. It's good for us to acknowledge that. Please don't think like you're in an episode of The Twilight Zone or something. This isn't like Bill Murray in the Groundhog Day movie, only it's just the sermons that repeat themselves over and over again. Paul spends a lot of time hammering home his main point here, but he's doing it on purpose. He's just super intentional about this. And one of the things is, he, it's just critically important for his audience, these churches in Galatia, to get what he's teaching. And then because this letter made the cut in the Bible, it's critically important that we get it. And one of the ways that people learn things is through repetition. Educators get this, they use that technique. Well, the folks who wrote the Bible through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they know it too. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says this in the book of Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 1. Big takeaway from that letter, the church in Philippi, is you're supposed to rejoice in the Lord. Paul makes that case clearly, and then he writes this in chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. (laughs) To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. He basically says, hey, it's good for me to repeat myself. It's no extra trouble. I already know it. And it's going to be helpful as a safeguard for you. Because there's the reality. We need to be reminded about stuff, don't we? We're going to take the Lord's Supper. We close our service. Well, the reason we do that is because as Christ followers, I hate to burst your bubble, we wander away from it. We forget what God did for us in Jesus. And so symbolically, we take the body and the blood to remind us of that thing. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 because we're prone to forget, or at least in our lives we act like we don't remember. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. See, reminding him of that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Let's be honest, we could take all the repeated stuff out of the Bible, couldn't we? It'd be a lot thinner book but we need the repeated stuff. It's really valuable. A lot of the stuff that repeats over and over again is the really hard stuff. Now, it's not the hard to understand stuff. It's the hard to apply stuff. It's a great old Mark Twain quote that I love. He says, it's not the things that I don't understand in the Bible that bother me. It's the things that I do understand. It's not the hard to grasp stuff. It's the hard to live stuff. You know this, don't you? Some of the most often repeated things in the Bible are biggies like, do not worry. Do not fear. Is that the kind of thing we're going to hear one time and go, okay, good, I got it, I'm great. No, the repetition's really good. It's necessary if we're going to apply those things that we learn in our lives. And so Paul repeats himself a bunch in the book of Galatians. Now, I've been thinking about this myself recently because my oldest boy, Gavin, is 15, and this summer he's going to get his driver's permit. And so Christina and I, we haven't talked a lot about this yet, but we're going to figure out who's going to teach him how to drive. Probably be both of us. But I remember so many years ago, it was my grandfather, Harry Rapp, that taught me and my brother, Bill, how to drive. Now, Bill was a couple years older than me, and he went through this process first. And and what I remember is he would come home after these driving lessons with Gramps, and he would be just like visibly upset. He'd be angry, you know. And my dad would come home at night, and he'd prod him a little bit. Hey, how'd it go, you know. And you could tell Bill wasn't having a good time. 
And so finally one night my dad digs in a little more and he's like, well, what, what is it? You know? And Bill just kind of blows up. He's like, it's so stupid. Gramps makes me do the same thing over and over again. I don't park two times. We park like 22 times. And he repeats himself. And I remember Bill saying this. It's just so annoying. My dad really nailed it. And I remember at this time he said, but it's important. <laughs> it's important that you do it over and over again because that's going to show that you know what you're learning. It's important because at some point in time, there's not going to be somebody there in the passenger seat with you, and you're going to have to be able to drive on your own. And when that happens, you can't take the time to stop and pause and wrestle and go, gosh, what do I do here? You need to be able to do it like it's second nature for you. Repeating the things is valuable. I got it. I don't know if Bill ever got it. I mean, Bill can drive. He lives near L.A. He's like a combat driver. He would probably race NASCAR if he wants to. But, but, but I don't know if he got the repetition thing, how important that is. But I did. This is not to say my gramps was the greatest driver's ed teacher ever. I failed my first driver's ed test because my gramps told me, hey, when you come up to a four-way stop, if there's nobody there, you don't really have to stop. Not a big law keeper, gramps. He was like, it'll conserve fuel if you just kind of roll through. So I learned that way. And that'll fail you on your driver's test, just to let you know. But, but the notion of repeating things, of just hammering over the really important things so we can be sure to apply them, that's critical. And that's how Gramps taught us how to drive. That's what Paul is doing here in Galatians. And if you think about it, the people in these churches in Galatia wouldn't have been studying it the way we are. When we're breaking it down in these chunks. They would have sat as a church and had somebody read the letter to them in its entirety. And so can you just picture them sitting there like my brother Bill, just rolling their eyes going, oh my goodness, Paul, we get it. Salvation's by grace through faith in Jesus. Thanks. You've said it like 22 times. And I think if Paul was there, instead of having sent the letter to him, I think he'd throw up his hands and say, okay, wait, wait. you say you get it? Okay, well, well, then let's see you do it. Prove to me that you understand what I'm saying. Prove to me that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Prove to me that you're not going to take this false notion of adding something to your faith. So that's what we're trying to accomplish as a church by walking through this letter together. So in one year or two years or five years, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, what's the book of Galatians about? You're going to be able to spit out, what's about understanding grace? It's about salvation by grace through faith in Jesus that you can't earn. If we do that, if that rolls off our tongues as second nature, it'll show that we engaged well in this study. But even more importantly than this is if somebody would ask you, what's it about, and you live it. You don't try to nullify grace by trying to earn it somehow in your actions. That's an even better test. So let's look at verses 10 to 14 of chapter 3 today with Paul's main point in the back of our mind. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus, period. And let's also remember that last week, in the first part of chapter 3, Paul made the case, hey, that's the way salvation has always been. Even in the Old Testament, that's the deal. This is not a new concept. People in the Old Testament were saved exactly the same way we are today. He referenced Father Abraham, who's so popular they made a song about him. He wasn't saved because he was an obedient guy. He was saved by faith. And he then became the father of faith for everybody who responds to the gospel by putting their trust in Jesus. So Paul's going to end this passage today in verse 14 by referencing Abraham again. Because that's kind of like one complete argument. Abraham's argument of salvation by grace through faith. But before he does that, he has kind of a sub-argument that he introduces. And it's brilliant. That's what I really want to look at today. Every one of those verses in his sub-argument 
contains an Old Testament reference. Because Paul is going to say, okay, if you want to argue that keeping the law, that doing works for salvation is how you earn righteousness, if that's the way to go, well, then let's do that. Let's look at what the Old Testament law teaches. Let's let the Old Testament speak for itself. We'll go to the source and see if that's what it really says. Or if maybe we're taking it and we're twisting it just a little bit. Because that's exactly where false teaching comes from. You've heard me say that before. People don't generate brand new converts by by just being crazy. If I'd stand up here and say, hey, I got this new religion, and we're going to worship this thing that I pulled out of my nose. I mean, it would be hard to get people to follow me. What false teaching does is so much sneakier than that. It comes along and it takes the truth, and then it twists it just a little bit. It muddies the water. So there may be something in Christianity that you don't like, and this false teaching gets you out of it. And you go, oh, I like that. Voila. (laughs) There's a new false gospel. Well, this is what the Judaizers are doing. So Paul's dealing with this fact that they're teaching for real righteousness, you've got to keep the law. That's what the law teaches. So Paul says, okay, let's go back and look at it. If you're going to base your entire hope for salvation on being obedient to the law, let's use that, the Old Testament law, as our foundation and see if your new movement makes sense. And so that's what Paul does in verses 10 to 12 of Galatians chapter 3. He writes this, For as many as are of the works of the law, you're trying to keep the law for salvation, says you're under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. He says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Why? For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Paul kind of does that thing I talked about last week where he breaks people into two camps. And listen to me, you don't want to be in one of these camps. This isn't the same as liking dogs or cats. He's saying if you want to keep the law for salvation, if you want to be in that camp, you're going to be cursed. Or you can be in the faith camp and you'll be blessed. You'll receive righteousness. Now, I don't want to get overly dramatic here, but this is a big deal. This is why he repeats it so often. What we believe about Paul's main point in Galatians comes to a head right here. We get to make a choice between being cursed or being blessed. That's a big deal. So if you're here and you say, well, I want to keep the law for salvation, Paul says, okay, here's your test. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26 there in verse 10. He says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by most of the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Is that what he says? What does it say? All the things. If you want to keep the law for righteousness, we'll be cursed if we don't keep all of it. It's a game changer, isn't it? Now that we know that verse, we can say goodbye to the idea of salvation by comparison. You can't say anymore, well, I could be saved by just doing more good than bad. I could be saved if I'm just a little better than John, or I'm just a little better than Michelle, I'll be okay. No. You want to get real uncomfortable together today? Let's take a test. Let's run through these Ten Commandments real quick and see how we're doing. I mean, that's the bedrock of the Old Testament law, the the Mosaic law, how we could earn our salvation. Now, help me on this one. Please don't answer out loud. Please don't raise your hands. It would be embarrassing for everybody. We'll have these up on the screen. We'll just take this test together, the Ten Commandments test. Here's your first test question. I'm not going to read these. I'll let you read them up there just like you would on a test. Number 10, have we ever wanted something that somebody else has? Remember, it's a silent test. 
Next one, number nine. Have I ever said anything untrue about someone else? Know that if you have and you lie here in church, that's a bad thing. You fail automatically. Remember when I was in seminary? It was so funny. Most of the tests I took were online, and you could cheat. I mean, you, you could totally cheat if you wanted to. The professors recognized that. They knew there was no way they could find out. The tests were timed. You would have had to cheat fast, but you could have done it. I remember the site that you entered to take the test had a password you had to type in, and the password was be honest. But the professors knew, and I had a professor stood in front of class, and he said, hey, you could cheat. And here's the deal. If you're going to cheat on your seminary test, you've got bigger issues than just cheating on your seminary test. How are we doing on lying? Number nine there. Number eight. If I ever taken something that's not mine, I'm not trying to make this test harder, but, but if you think you did pretty good, just ask yourself this week, were you paid by an employer to look at Facebook or watch YouTube or check your email? Number seven. Okay, this one and number six might make us feel good about ourselves for just a second. So if it does... Let me remind you of Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, where Jesus quotes this verse and he says, if you look at a person lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Ouch. Number six. Okay, if we killed somebody, again, no hands. Most of us know, but again, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, he says if we're angry with someone, it's the same. Has so you been angry with somebody? Number four. I'm sorry, it's number five. I'm messing you up on the test. Number five. Everybody here always respect their mother and father. I always like to look for families that are sitting together. Just no, I'm not going to pick on somebody. Number four, the long one. Have you ever gone a whole week without resting in the Lord? Answer that one honestly. Number three. Okay, now this one's tough enough, let's be honest. But what if you don't talk like a sailor? My apologies to any sailors here today. No offense. But, but what if it's not that you have a bad mouth? What, what if you do something and you try and then blame it on the Lord or, or you put some words in the Lord's mouth? What if you say, hey, I, I ditched church last week, but it was because God told me to go and play golf and enjoy him in his creation. If we're doing that, if we're trying to give God credit for something that we want to do, we're breaking this commandment. Number two, almost done. How are we doing? Have we ever made an idol? And it doesn't have to be physically crafting something, building something. What if you do this with the St. Louis Cardinals or with Diet Coke? It's a good thing we're not raising our hands. Last one, number one. Have I worshipped that idol, that thing, above God? Have I worshipped the Cardinals above God? Have I worshipped my hobby, my career, my family, anything above God? There's your test. How'd we do? Anybody go 10 for 10? Smart Money says we all failed miserably. I bet right now you're thinking I'm a little mean for giving the test. But here's the reality. It gets worse than that in the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus shows there's actually not just these 10. It's like 613 commandments from God, and they cover everything. Moral laws and civil laws and dietary laws. And if that's the deal... We want to take the test according to Deuteronomy 27, 26. We don't keep those things 100% of the time that I'm cursed. So is that 
what I want to do? Is that what I want to really put my hope in? So keeping the law? Paul's willing to go there and argue from the Old Testament and say, hey, if we want to base our salvation on our performance, then all you got to do is be perfect all the time. He says, if that's what you want, you Judaizers who are presenting this false gospel, you Galatians who would be willing to buy into it, well, then just know that what the Bible actually says is that one day God will take our failure on his law test and he'll use it against us. We'll be cursed. Verse 10 indicates that not only can the law not save us, it wasn't designed to save us, but if we treat the law like it could save us, it will actually be the thing that curses us. And this shouldn't be new for his audience. He's already previewed this back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. That's a hard word, cursed. In the Old Testament in Hebrew, it means devoted to destruction. So Paul is basically saying here, please, please, please don't come and say, well, the Old Testament says you can be saved through your works. Because if it could, it would only be if you were perfect. Paul's a pretty good judge of character here. I think he knows that apart from Jesus, nobody's perfect. He knows everybody, including himself, fails this test. We know Paul's testimony. He gets grace. He understands it. And here's the thing we have to recognize about Paul. Because he understands it, now his heart breaks for those who don't. He understands the true gospel. He knows apart from the gift of grace and responding in faith, people are going to be cursed, going to be eternally separated from God, and that touches him. That motivates him. That spurs him on to action. He's willing to have these arguments with the Judaizers because of this. There's another test question. Are we that motivated? If we have family or friends who haven't professed faith in Christ, are we this motivated where we're wrestling in prayer for them all the time? We're willing to share the gospel with them over and over again at the risk of offending them just so they have the chance to respond? I mean, we know we can't save them, right? We can't make the choice for them, but we can tell them the truth. Paul's run into these folks who believe they could keep the law for salvation. And he confronts them with the Old Testament and says, sure, if you're perfect, then good luck with that because you're not. You're not perfect. So if you choose to live like you could keep all the law, you'll be cursed because of that choice. And Paul's saying that's a bad choice. You look at it that way, you can start to feel Paul's burden for these people. He can't make the choice for them. But he wants to make it just so crystal clear they're making a bad choice if that's the camp they decide to buy into. And he's tried other ways of presenting it to this point. Yes, he's repeating himself. But his argument is, hey, if you're coming and saying, well, God gave us the law, and it's good, so can't we keep the law to attain righteousness? He's saying then either you're misinterpreting the Old Testament or you've just never read it. Because it says as clear as day, if that's what you want to do, you'll be cursed if you don't keep the law perfectly. Now, this should have never got to this point. This was not supposed to be this confusing. Honestly, immediately after God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, there in Exodus chapter 20, the people in attendance are noticeably freaked out. I mean, God has shown up. He's given these tablets to Moses. The mountain is shaken, and there's lightning, and there's thunder. And so the people there, they beg Moses in verse 19, speak to us yourself, and we'll listen. But let not God speak to us, or we'll die. Because it was scary for God to show up. And look at how Moses answers him in verse 20. He says, do not be afraid. How many times do we need to hear that one before we get it? Do not be afraid. For God has come, 
in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you. Why? So that you may not sin. See, God has Moses use this word afraid there in the first part of verse 20. It's the Hebrew word yare. The sense is of being frightened. Moses says, hey, even though this is scary, even though the mountain's shaking and there's these natural phenomenon, he says, don't be scared, but instead, fear God. Now that second Hebrew word there for fear, it's just a derivation. It's yurah. It's slightly different, but it means reverence. He says, don't be scared. He says, you need to be in awe. Be in awe of the God who sent down the Ten Commandments, who controls nature, who created everything. Yeah, reverence, that would be a good attitude to have. Not scary fear, but just awesome fear and how powerful and mighty and sovereign God is. That's the notion with the Ten Commandments from the very start. God didn't give them to Moses so we could take a test on them. Be some kind of handy checklist we'd carry around and go, oh, good, no stealing today, no lying. Feeling pretty good about myself. No, we get them not as a picture of how good we're supposed to try and be. It's really a comprehensive view of how good God is. It's supposed to be the character, the the perfection of God. Those Ten Commandments, which birthed like 613 commandments, which the New Testament boils down to just two, love the Lord with everything you've got, love your neighbor as yourself, they're, they're not a test that we're supposed to be able to ace. It was designed as a test that will all fail. Every one of us miserably. Why? So we won't keep trying to not sin under our own strength. The law was given so that we'd come to the end of ourselves and realize, I can't do this. I need something bigger and better and holier than me if I'm going to be able to be reconciled with a sinless, perfect, holy God. I can't do it on my own. And maybe that hurts to hear. You're here today and you've been running your tail off on the performance treadmill. And you're just now starting to notice that the view never changes. You always stay in the same place. Then this is pretty tough news. What Paul is telling the Galatians is hard to grasp. That's why he repeats it. But he loves them so much he's going to tell them. I'm going to love you so much today that I want to tell you. Because if you choose to ignore it, then it becomes worse news. The reason I love that Mark Twain quote is because I struggled with it personally for so many years. I was that guy, well, sure, the Bible says whatever, but I'm sure it really means whatever I want it to mean. Sure, the Bible says do not steal, but oh, man, the tax laws, they're unfair. I think I'm paying more than my fair share. So I think when it says do not steal, it means don't rob a bank, but it certainly doesn't mean don't cheat on your taxes. Do we understand that's not how the Bible works? We don't get to pick and choose what it means. I guarantee Paul hears a lot of critics, people who will tear the Bible apart for things like this. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, where Paul quotes that people will be eternally cursed if they don't understand grace and respond with faith. They think that sounds mean. Is it mean to tell somebody the truth? Especially when it deals with eternity? No. It's the most loving thing we could possibly do. In verse 10, Paul's trying to explain, you can't pass the Old Testament test for righteousness on your own. It doesn't work. And you can't try and make the Bible mean what you want it to mean. So if you're buying into this notion that you could do anything enough to be saved, I could be Jewish enough, or I could be circumcised enough, that's a painful thought, 
I could be legal enough that that would save me, then you're in trouble. Because the more we try to accomplish that in our own flesh, it says the more we're condemning ourselves. The more we're storing up judgment against ourselves. And this passage is beautiful. And the beautiful part of it is, Paul doesn't just teach that hard truth. That trying to work for salvation doesn't work and then leave folks guessing as to what the alternative is. No, he's so clear. There in verse 11, how can we achieve the righteousness of God? And he continues to use the Old Testament to show, okay, the law is not it. It's not designed to save. Well, what is the way of salvation? Chapter 3 and verse 11, he quotes Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4, which says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. So don't think you can do this on your own. He says, but what? But the righteous will live by his faith. If I can't work my way to righteousness, then how am I going to get it? By faith. That's all chapter uh, 3, verses 11 and 12 are about. And in verse 12, he's quoting Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 5, which says this, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. How'd we do on the Old Testament test? We passed the Ten Commandments test. Paul's quoting the Old Testament and saying, hey, if you do the commandments, you'll live by them. But if you can't do them, you'll die by them. You'll be cursed by them. And Paul knows, and now I hope we know, we can't do them. We're not going to perfectly keep the law. So if we're going to be eternally blessed, we need some help. Well, these verses say faith is the answer. And now if you're really dialed in, that should beg a logical question. The question's got to be how. How does faith save me? Because I'm so wired to try and want to earn my own way. How can giving up on that, even though I've heard that trying to keep the law will curse me, how can giving up on that save me? I'm glad you asked. Because Paul covers it. He's pretty thorough here. This is what verse 13 answers. He explains this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You've been zoning out. Come back in. Jump in with me. You've been thinking about the NFL draft or what you're going to get your mom for Mother's Day. Jump back in because this is huge. You need to refocus here. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 is the message of Christendom. This is what God is inviting everybody to trust in that will result in salvation. If we believe it and we respond by putting our faith in Jesus. I'm not breaking any new news here. There's nobody in this room who passed the Ten Commandments test. No one on this earth did except for Jesus. And there's no curve. This is a pass-fail test, and you either get 100 or you fail. So don't come to me with, well, I got a 98. I did pretty good. No, you failed. We all failed. But here is the best deal in the universe. Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect, sinless life, who aced the test, is willing to give his life as a ransom for ours. And he did it by being crucified on the cross. In big, thick theology textbooks across the world, this is called the substitutionary atonement. Jesus, hanging on the tree, hanging on the cross, in my place as my substitute. He took my place up there. He took your place up there. We know the Bible teaches the wages of sin is death, Sin is not being able to perfectly keep the law. Jesus took that for us. 
He made this payment that we couldn't make. And the weird deal about our society, if you think about it, is you hear that story, the idea of somebody being willing to take a penalty for you, a burden for you, and we love that. We think that sounds so cool, it's inspiring. We see it in Hollywood, we see it in movies, it's great. So in the Hunger Games, when Katniss voluntarily substitutes herself for a younger sister, we're thrilled by that. If you're older than that, you can think Bruce Willis and Armageddon when he pushes Ben Affleck out of the way and the meteor doesn't... You know, I mean, you get the idea. Hollywood tells this story over and over again because it resonates with us. It's inspiring. We sit and think, gosh, I'd love to do that. We're drawn to it. Something feels really right about it. Well, if we love it in the movies so much... Why aren't we more excited about what we see God doing in Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 21 tells us this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus, who aced the Ten Commandments test and every other test he ever took, and who lives this perfect, sinless life, to become sin on our behalf. Us, we who know plenty of sin, Jesus took our place. He took the curse that comes from trying to keep the law perfectly so that we could become righteous in God's sight. That's what Galatians 3 and 13 is about. Jesus becoming accursed for us. And not only because he takes our sin, it's that he makes this trade with us. He gets the fuzzy end of the lollipop. He gets our sin. What do we get? His righteousness. We bombed the test, whether we got a zero or a 98. We failed the pass-fail test because we can't keep the law all the time. And Jesus comes up to us and he says, oh, man, sorry, that's a tough break. That didn't work out for you. Here, I tell you what. You take my test. I passed the test. But, But you take mine and it'll be like what I did, you did. My death and burial and resurrection, it'll be like you did it. An early church father named Athanasius, he called this trade the glorious exchange. And that's not even a lofty enough term to describe it. But his explanation is incredible. This is what he wrote. He said, Christ, the Son of God, got the punishment. He took the punishment of an enemy of God so that we, who are enemies of God, could receive the blessings of sons and daughters of God. That's the glorious exchange. That's substitutionary atonement. If you're here today and you've never really grasped what the essence of being a Christ follower is, that's at the heart of it right there. God in his love and his mercy sent his son to make a way for us to be reconciled to God. God offered grace and then we as undeserving, sinful people who failed the test, we accept it and we respond with faith, then we get to receive the blessings of that glorious exchange. We love that story in Hollywood. The notion of someone being willing to die for another, it's a great example. We spend millions to go to those movies, but many, many people in this world who love it on the big screen will never accept it, will never take that lopsided trade and get to benefit from the blessings. Why? There's lots of reasons. There really are. All of them boil down to the fact that we don't understand grace, but but so much of the time, it's because we want to earn it. And you know this is true in your life. 
If somebody gives you a gift you weren't expecting, what do you do? You run out and get them one because you want to keep it even. We, we can't make the glorious exchange even. Why don't people respond to this offer, salvation by grace through faith? Because we want to work for it. So it's not just a problem that Paul had with the people in Galatia. It's a problem we have today. And there's plenty of other reasons why people won't make this trade. You, you know some of them. Maybe we're just blind to it. Maybe we truly haven't been broken yet to the point where we recognize our need for a Savior. Maybe we're pretty smart, and on the surface, man, that just seems too simple. It's just too easy. If there really is a perfect, sinless, holy God, how could I be reconciled to him just by faith? That's too simple. For some people, they really struggle with this. They don't want to give up control. If you hear the true gospel and seriously understand that we can't save ourselves, then by definition, that would mean we're no longer in control. We don't want to do that. We don't want to give up control. I've met other people, they think grace, they think following Christ is a show of weakness. Only weak people need Jesus. I'm strong. I can handle this on my own. I've counseled so many people in marriage and in pre-marriage counseling, and every one of them, I've said some variation of these words, Hey, if you're struggling, get your tail back in my office. We've got to talk. We've got to see what God is doing in this. But because if you think that you can do it on your own, you think that's strong, that's really weak. When you know something isn't going well, when you know you can't do something on your own, the strongest possible thing you can do, the wisest thing you can do, is go talk to somebody about it and ask for help. I think there are people who think they are just too far gone for God to want to make this trade. They say, well, nobody deserves grace. I get it, but for sure I don't deserve it because I did you know, this thing. God forgives all the other people, but they haven't done what I've done. And I guess, let me apologize even before I say this, but, but if you've been using that as your defense and you think it makes you sound humble, it's not. It's really the opposite of humility. You're the proud one. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 is talking about. Because what you're really saying is God, the all-powerful, omniscient God, who I'm supposed to revere, he can do everything except forgive my sin. Christ's death and burial and resurrection on the cross, that doesn't cover what I've done. That's just not true. So are there reasons why people won't accept the glorious exchange? Yeah. Some of those I mentioned, I'm sure there's more. But Paul keeps coming back to this question and trying to make us understand grace, trying to help us get what he wants his audience to get. We get to choose. So will we choose to be cursed by trying to keep the law, by trying to earn salvation because it's impossible to do, or will we be blessed by getting out of our own way and recognizing that it's something that God does, responding to God's amazing grace by taking the deal? Because we're going to be the ones that hugely benefit. We'll be clothed in robes of righteousness that we didn't deserve. Let me just add this in. Because I guarantee there are folks here today who've made the trade. We, we took the trade. We professed faith in Christ. And yet there are still things daily that we struggle with. What are those things that cause us to forget what Christ has done? And we slip back into this mode of trying to earn God's grace. I have time here when we take communion to deal with that, to talk with God about that. But Paul finishes up his argument 
in verse 14 of chapter 3. And it's, it's classic. He explains to the church what God's big picture plan has been all along. In verse 13, he's just shared that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Why would he do that? Verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let me do this. Let me, let me read that one more time, but I want to I change something. I know the Bible says not to add or take away. I'm not doing that. I just want to carry this out to its logical conclusion. You read this verse, Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. You put your name in where the Gentiles are. Why did Christ become a curse for us? In order that in In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to James Green so that he would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You read Galatians 3.14, you put your name in there. Because that's what the Gentiles becomes. We can receive the blessing of Abraham through faith. What's this promise that he's talking about? We looked at it last week in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Then he, this is Abraham, believed in the Lord. And he, capital H, the Lord, reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. What's the promise? What did Abraham believe? That his descendants were going to be more numerous than the stars. Going to outnumber the grains of sand because of faith. This is the deal. If you've been with us in this series up to this point in time, if you're going to stick with us to the end, it's not going to change. Paul's not going to introduce anything new over the next couple chapters. He's going to keep hammering on this message. And it's going to feel like Groundhog's Day. That's fine. Paul just desperately wants us to understand this. We receive salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, period. We are blessed when we understand grace. We can't earn it. But when we respond to grace with faith, no matter what we think we've done, no matter what we have done, Jesus Christ has got us covered. He's willing to make the most one-sided trade in all of history. This glorious exchange where he takes our junk, our sin, and we get his righteousness. We close our time today by taking the Lord's Supper together. If you're here today, you've taken the trade, this is for us as we close. And you're going to have that time to be reminded, to remember what God has done for us in Jesus. I wish we didn't need the reminder so often, but we do. We're going to take the bread and the cup And we'll be able to think about Jesus becoming a curse for us. Why would we wander away from that? But we do. And so we'll have this time to examine our hearts, confess our sins, be right with God, partake of Christ's symbolic body and blood. This is your first time with us here at the chapel. The elements are on the table all around you. And Kelly, I think, is going to come and play some music. And you're going to have some time to do that. You can just respond to what God has done in your life. You're here and you've never accepted that glorious exchange? I'm begging you, take the time that we're going to give you to to respond and do that. Gary's going to come back up. We're going to close our our service by worshiping and song together and I'll come back up and do some announcements and you'll get to meet Sophie who got baptized today. Let me pray for the bread and the cup. Father God, I, I can't do it and I can't wrap my mind around the glorious exchange. But that's what you did. 
We read your word. We understand not through anything that we've done, but because of who you are, because of what you've done, we can have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus. God, thank you for the opportunity to come together as a church. Thank you for the chance to study your word, to dig in, to understand what it means. Help us to grasp it, Lord. You're the one who saves. You're the one who draws us to yourself through your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand grace. God, we love you. I lift the bread and the cup to you this time. You know hearts. You know what's going to be going on in ours as we spend this time with you. God, we give this time to you, this local church to you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.